All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, We're going to study God's Word together and continue our worship of God. So if you would open your Bible to the book of Acts. You guessed it, chapter (laughs) 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to, like I said last week, we're slowing down for this summary statement. Luke pauses the movement of the narrative and just gives you a snapshot of the early church and says, look at them. They're uh, dripping wet with baptism, brand new believers, and look what they're devoted to. And so we're going to study what they were devoted to so that we ourselves can devote ourselves to the same. And I want us to review that here together this morning. I want us to read aloud part of our church covenant so that we can see in a fresh way the connection that our church covenant has to the text before us in Acts chapter 2. So if you would join me. I'm going to put a section of our church covenant on the screen, and if you would join me in reading this together. Together, we will draw near to God in worship. We will delight in the glory of God, depend on the presence of God, grow in the knowledge of God, and submit to the word of God as the all-sufficient authority in our lives and in his church. Together, we will hold fast to the hope we profess. We will regularly participate in communion as we solemnly and joyfully remember the past work of Christ on the cross, celebrate the present work of Christ at the Father's right hand, and anticipate the future work of Christ in return for his bride. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them, them being the church, the local church in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So a woman from our church when I was in New Orleans, she gave me uh, this gift many years ago, and she said she was in a flea market in New Orleans, and when she saw it, she thought of me, and it says, it's just one of those desktop nameplates, and it just says, I love Sunday mornings. And she, uh, we had been in the same church for many years, and I would lead worship from the piano and then occasionally would, uh, would preach. And so this is now in my office, it is a treasure to me that when she saw a sign that said, I love Sunday morning, she thought, I think Matt would want that. Because <laughs> I do. I love Sunday mornings. I've loved Sunday mornings all of my life, as far as I can remember. And yet there, there is an irony, so many of you know, the worst day of my life was a Sunday morning. Uh, My dad died in the middle of a sermon that he was preaching when I was 12 on Palm Sunday. He was using a sermon illustration about a chicken on his farm, and he never got to the end of that sermon illustration. There was a a thump. I looked down for a second. I heard a thump. I looked up. Dad wasn't there, and then there was screaming, and people were running and calling out emergency instructions. That was a Sunday morning. Seven days later, our, our new family of four now 
walked back into that church building, 5885 Pontchartrain Boulevard, in a daze over the very spot where my dad had fallen seven days earlier. And we gathered again. And my mom sat on the Hammond B3 organ and and we sang again. And the woman who had just jumped over the pew and shielded my eyes from the resuscitation efforts the previous Sunday, I could hear her singing alto behind me the following Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that. And Sunday after Sunday, that little church sang us back to life. I love Sunday mornings. I should hate Sunday mornings. I was traumatized by a Sunday morning. I have vivid, as if it was yesterday, memories of that Sunday morning. And yet, Sunday morning became such a deep grace in my life. And and to me, it's no surprise that my brother is in pastoral ministry, my sister is on full-time staff at a church, because we love the church and we love Sunday mornings because God used it in a powerful way as together we, the church that was Calvary Temple, drew near to God. So my prayer for each one of you as a Christian during this too strong emphasis that we're having, year one is primarily focused on our life as a church, being the church, doing church as God instructs in his word. My prayer for this whole season is that every believer here would join your life to the local church. And by join your life, I don't mean attend. That's because that's not what the New Testament means either. It means join your life, covenant with other believers, brothers and sisters in a local church, a recognized local church with qualified leaders and with the gospel as the centerpiece of the church's life and then faithfully gather with that local church. Doesn't have to be this one if you're attending this morning. It could, look, I can give you a list of faithful church. We pray for them week after week right up here in our prayer of intercession time. Join your life to a local church as a member of that local church and then faithfully gather, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, Hebrews chapter 10, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near that you would lean into that because you know there's grace to be had in Sunday morning gatherings. Here we see two things in the early church. Number one, we see them together in worship. Together in worship. So here's the point if you're taking notes. We become strong by faithfully gathering to worship God. Faithfully gathering to worship God. So you see in verse 44, it says, all who believed were together. So all who believed were together, and we know how many believed in verse 41. 3,000 believed. So 3,000 believed, 3,000 were baptized, and guess how many were together? 3,000 were together. The whole church met together. They valued this. They were devoted to this together. There was a large gathering of the church, which then gave way, and we'll look at this, to smaller, more informal, house-to-house gatherings of the church. And we'll see that when we look next week at verses 43 to 47. But the togetherness, that term dominates uh, the whole chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you'll just see these uh, punctuated throughout our text, peppered throughout our text. Chapter two, verse one, they were all 
together in one place. Verse four, all filled with the Spirit, all began to tell God's mighty deeds uh, in the languages of the nations. Uh, Verse 32, all were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, all were giving sacrificially so that their needs might be met. So it's just this all, each, all, each, all. It's just over and over you see the sense of, it's just not a collection of rugged individualists. This is a family. This is a body and the body belongs together. The body parts hang together, are strengthened together. It's, it's a church. They're worshiping in unison and they were devoted to worshiping God together. So the elements of church gatherings are handpicked by God. So I hope, even if this is your very first Sunday, welcome, if this is your very first Sunday, I hope you can pick up on something, and that is this. We're not trying to do something here on Sunday mornings that nobody's ever done. (laughs) We're not trying to be clever, we're not trying to be innovative. What we would like to do is not something new, but do something very old, something the church has been doing for roughly 2,000 years. And so we wanna be able to put our finger on a verse in the Bible for every single element of what we do when we gather. We're not making this up. God knows how to build a believer better than I do, better than the elder council does. So what does the elder council do? Looks down in the text of scripture and says, it says we're supposed to sing. It says we're supposed to read the Bible out loud. It says we're supposed to preach this book and teach this book. It says we're supposed to pray. And so we're like, hey, let's just do that. Let's just do the stuff God put in his all-sufficient word. So verse 42, it doesn't have all the elements of gathered worship that we'll see in the New Testament. But we do see four massive pillars, foundational practices for gathered worship. And we'll just walk through these quickly. Scripture, read, scripture read, and preached and taught. So we saw last week, we looked at this by itself, so I'm not gonna belabor the point, but we did look last week at how they devoted themselves, you see in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. So they were listening to what the apostles were teaching about Jesus, about his person and his work, and about how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and he was the fulfillment of the story of Israel, and the kingdom of God breaks in through Jesus, and so on and so forth. So they're unpacking that. But even when the age of the apostles faded, and it did, so they replaced Judas's empty chair with Matthias, but then when James is killed in a few chapters from now, they don't say, hey, we need that 12th chair filled. The age of the apostles begins to fade and gives way to a different office in the church. And we'll see that office emerge in Acts chapter 6. You see deacons so that the elders can give themselves to the word and prayer, the ministry of the word and prayer. And so when the age of the apostles faded, gathered worship continued to be centered around the teaching of the word of God. Here's what Paul said, not to an apostle, but to a pastor named Timothy. He said, until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then he would go on in his second letter to that same leader and he would say, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. So the public reading of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, and the proclamation of Scripture 
is central in the life of the church even after the age of the apostles has faded. Friends, let's understand and let's recommit ourselves to this conviction. It's the word of God that sustains the faith of the people of God. It's the word of God that sustains the faith of the people of God. So scripture, second, fellowship. And here we mean shared life. We mean shared needs and meals and provision and friendship. And that's what's under that term. They were devoted to the fellowship, koinonia, the, the the sharing is what that word means. And we're gonna dive into that more next week as I think verse 43 to 47 really unpacks what the fellowship felt like. But I'll just say what they did, they did together. They shared everything. If I've got food, you've got food. I've got a home, you've got a home. Homeless believers or believers who are passing through itinerant teachers and preachers from other places. And the apostles just assume they'll stay at your house. They're coming to your town, of course. They're they're not gonna need a hotel, they'll stay with you, right? There's this assumption of hospitality. There's this assumption that we're we're a family, what else are we gonna do, leave them in the cold? No, we provide, for the poor among us, we provide for them. We're happy to do that. Nobody's gonna twist our arms, I'll sell a field. And I'll use the proceeds from that field to provide for my poor brothers and sisters. What they, it, it was stunning to the world around them. There was just, Roman Empire was slack-jawed watching these people sacrifice for one another. And we'll see that more next week. So scripture, fellowship, third, prayers. So they were devoted to the prayers. Really, if you, as we walk through the book of Acts, what we're gonna see is Prayer carries the whole thing along. Pr- prayer is, is the wind in the sails of the forward movement of mission in the book of Acts. They just, can, they pray about everything. Uh, here's, a, here's a quick sampling. I'm not gonna take us through the entire book, but this is just a quick sampling. Acts 1, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, Acts 4, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Acts 9, Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turned toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. Acts 10, the next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. Acts 12, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Just prayer, prayer. There's always praying. Whenever you see them together, one of the things, if you're eavesdropping, one of the things that they're doing is praying, continually praying, and you might ask the question, where'd they get this conviction about the centrality of the practice of prayer? And the answer is, from Jesus. So you read Luke's gospel, you read any of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see Jesus. Luke chapter five, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke chapter six, Jesus spent the night praying to God. Matthew 19, little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Luke chapter nine, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Jesus depended on the Father in prayer, Jesus seeks the Father's will in prayer. He doesn't just choose the 12 disciples. He spends the night before praying, and then he chooses the 12 disciples. And then it's no surprise in the book of Acts, 
We don't have 12 disciples. We don't have 12 apostles. What are we going to do? First thing, pray. <laughs> Second thing, now it's time to choose that 12th disciple. Jesus had done this for them. He laid down the pattern, and they're just following in his footsteps. Jesus prays on a mountain. He prays in the garden of agony. He prays from the cross. He ascends to heaven ever to make intercession for his people. Is it any surprise that Jesus, when he pours out his spirit on the church, the people pray? It's the spirit of Jesus. And Jesus was constantly in prayer when his disciples fumbled an exorcism attempt. And he comes up and he says, look, these only come out by prayer and fasting. There was, a, there was a power, there was a dependency in the life of Jesus that made them say, tell us what you're doing out there on that mountain. Teach us to pray. And he says, I will. And then he leads them in what we now call the Lord's Prayer. I love what Adrian Rogers, the late preacher, said. This church, the early church, was not rusted together by traditionalism. They were not wired together by organization. They were not frozen together by formalism. They were melted and brought together by prayer, praise, and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That we have times of prayer in every one of our gatherings, week after week. It's an important time. It's not throw away. It's not transition so people can move around the stage. It is stop, think, Pray through various things that God wants to do in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in the world. It's a very intentional thing. We do it on purpose. Then we have kind of sacred convocations. We have a few times, a couple of times or a few times every year where we say, hey, everybody, if you can fast, fast on this particular day and then meet us that evening for us all to gather and pray. October 19th is our next one, if you want to write that down. It's a night for us to gather and pray, wouldn't it be awesome if like the early church, we came together and God moved and he increased our faith and our trust in him and our confidence in his mission. And after that prayer gathering, we saw the Lord apparently did something that night. Apparently something broke loose in, in the heavens and God brought about triumphs of grace in the world after that night. Could, wouldn't that be an awesome thing? So the early church did. They prayed, then they expected stuff to break loose. Prayer, next, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So a sacrament is, um, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. And Jesus ordained two sacraments, ordinances, water baptism, and the Lord's Supper, were given to the church for all the ages until his return. These are signs. They're visible, observable evidences of God's grace at work. So we just saw in our text, we just saw 3,000 people respond to the message of the gospel that Peter preached. Then guess what happened? 3,000 people went into the waters because they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. Let's start there. Come into the waters. Disappear under the water because your old life is gone. Come up out of the water because you got a new life in Jesus. So it's baptism, the sacrament of baptism. And now, having been baptized, we see them devoted what? To the breaking of the bread. And the definite article is included in the original. The breaking of the bread. We'll come back to that in a minute and unpack it more, more deeply. But the language 
of the breaking of the bread in a formal list like this in verse 42 means more than just potluck. It, I don't think it means less than potluck because we'll get to potluck next week when we look at 43 to 47. But it means potluck plus. It means more than that. It means that there was this meal of remembrance. There, it, was a, it was an element of worship in the gathering. It was really important. It refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing celebration that we have been reconciled. We who are in Christ have been reconciled to God and made one family through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And after the message this morning, appropriately, we will take the Lord's Supper together. So two sacraments, baptism, you only get baptized once, you make profession of faith, and then you go under the waters, publicly declare that faith, but you don't have the supper once. You, you eat continually. You are continually nourished. You are continually remembering. Do you, um, Paul said, as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 42 is not a comprehensive picture of the elements of New Testament worship. For example, there's no mention here in this text of, of the last element we'll talk about this morning, singing. So once we see a fuller picture of the mature New Testament church, we're gonna see people singing. It's gonna be clear later in the New Testament that God's people come together and they, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, sing. They teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They make melody together. They sing their praises to God and they do it knowing, as was true in the Old Testament, that God inhabits the praises of his people. So the early church felt their need for the gathering of believers on the Lord's day. My question for you is, do you feel the need of this gathering? D does it feel urgent to be here? Does it feel nourishing to be here? And let me even vacate the language of feeling because feelings really aren't ultimate. Do you believe this gathering is something God uses to make you strong, whether you feel it or not? Do you believe God knows how to build a believer and he builds a believer by gathering you with other believers? I need it. I need this gathering every Sunday. I need the word of God every Sunday. I, I know I'm often preaching it, but I promise you before I preach it, my time in the Word is a worship event all week. It is a, it is a conviction feeling event. It is a, an encouragement and hope building event for me. Before I stand here, it's a time of worship. I, I need the Word of God. I need to hear stories of salvation when the waters are stirred in baptism and Nathan goes in and says, here's what Jesus has done. That does something for my soul. I need to hear your voices singing truth into my actual ears so that I can believe it more deeply and cling to Christ more closely. I need our times of corporate prayer. I love Sunday mornings. I have it on good authority that God loves them too. <laughs> and that God's favorite place on earth every Sunday morning is wherever local churches gather in the world. Everywhere local churches gather, God says, I'm coming to church. It's a pre-commitment. Sunday morning's blocked. 
Since Resurrection Sunday, God has met with his people every single Sunday. As we draw near to God, James says, he draws near to us. Unfailingly, he draws near to us. Brook Hills in Acts 2, we see a picture of where we flourish. We flourish, one, together in worship. And we flourish, number two, together around the table. Together around the table. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. You see similar language in verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread. So that breaking of bread broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. And so we see Christians share life around tables, eating and drinking. They share life around tables, eating and drinking. So they're in each other's homes, we'll see next week. They're sitting at the table. There's this palpable sense uh, of joy. There's a palpable sense of gladness, a, a sense of belonging. Interpreters now, so interpreters differ on what to do with the language of the breaking of bread. Does the breaking of bread refer to a meal together, period, end of story? Or does it refer to the meal together, the meal of remembrance that began when Jesus broke bread in a legendary fashion on the night when he was betrayed. He broke bread the night before he was crucified, and that breaking of the bread was, was language that they locked into, and it was a commitment for them. So is it one or the other? I think it's, I think it's, it's both. So the breaking of bread around many tables directs us to the breaking of bread around one table. The breaking of bread that was happening around many tables was pointing then upward and then and even culminating in a gathered event of the breaking of the bread around the one table of the Lord. John Stott said, uh, wrote this um, interpretive words about these verses. The definite article in both expressions, literally the breaking of the bread and the prayers, suggests a reference to the Lord's Supper on the one hand, although almost certainly at that early stage as a part of a larger meal. In other words, a larger meal where we break bread with a lowercase b that then culminates in or leads to that moment where we say, and now let's break the bread that we share and remind ourselves of what Jesus did in his broken body and his poured out blood. In other words, the meal they shared together would culminate in the breaking of bread, the sharing of the cup, remembrance of the cross of Christ, and in hope of the return of Christ. I think one of the big struggles that we have, particularly where we live in the, in the Bible Belt, is um, we become so familiar with things that earlier generations of believers considered to be sacred privileges. Deep and sacred privileges. So, for example, John Patton, missionary in the 1800s to the cannibals in the New Hebrides, they tried to kill him on multiple occasions. 
He dodged those efforts, but he remained there. And after years of patient, faithful witness to those people, many of them came to Christ. And here's how John Patton describes their first communion. For years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those hands once stained with the blood of cannibalism but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love. I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. That is a description of the Lord's Supper. Why would anyone leave early at the end of gathered worship when we are face to face with this sacred privilege of meeting God, the Lord Jesus, at his table? He stands, as it were, wide arm welcome, come to the table, and we hit the doors for what? It's a sacred privilege, friends. Honor it. The story of God and his people is a story about food. So in 2010, Neil McGregor, who was uh, then director of the British Museum, gave a series of radio talks called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And then inspired by that, a Christian author named Tim Chester summarizes the Bible in I think, 12 meals. He summarized the entire Bible as a story of 12 meals. I'm reducing it to seven, which is equally a great biblical number. Uh, So seven is what we're gonna walk through together here this morning. But just consider the whole story of the Bible told in seven meals. Creation, a table prepared. So what's the first thing God says to humanity after he creates Adam and Eve? First thing, Genesis 2, 16, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. It is a table. It is a feast. I've packed the pantry. Come enjoy the feast. I've I've laid it out before you. It's a meal prepared. The garden was a table prepared, and humanity was made to enjoy a meal in the presence of God. Hold on to that phrase. Humanity was meant to enjoy a meal in the presence of God. That leads to the second meal, fall, a table broken. So when our first parents sinned and basically broke the world, there was what in their hands? Food. They were holding food in their hands when they broke the world. They rebelled against God. She, it says, she took and she ate and she shared. She took and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her. It was the breaking of the table. It was the breaking of the meal that we had with God leads to number three, Passover, a table shielded. So our meal with God was meant to feel like a place of refuge. You fast forward from the garden 
to the moment before the Exodus. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They're crying out to God. God sends Moses to rescue them. Plagues of judgment are raining down on Egypt all around them, and the final plague is coming, and the final plague is God is gonna snatch the life out of every firstborn in all of Egypt as an act of his judgment and his holiness. But God told the Israelites before the angel of death comes and swings through town, before that happens, here's what you need to do to be safe to have a refuge when the angel of death comes. And he says, sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood of that lamb over the doors of your homes. And whenever I see the blood over the door of the house, I will pass over you. Uh, judgment won't stop at your door. I will, and that's why the meal was called Passover. God passed over them with respect to his judgment. And so then what happens? The angel of death comes through and the people of God were sheltered under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And meanwhile, indoors, while death was raging all around them, what was going inside the house? They were eating a meal together. And what was passed around the table? The sacrificed lamb and unleavened bread. It was a meal of refuge. The lamb that protected them also nourished them. The next meal, tabernacle, a table of presence. So jump forward in time again. God had told Moses to build a tabernacle. That the tabernacle had echoes of the Garden of Eden, so there were fruit-bearing trees that were decorated into the, into the embroidery of the place. One of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle was a table overlaid with gold, and on that table was was placed freshly baked bread. Is there anything that smells better than freshly baked bread? It's just the most inviting thing in the world. And God says, put a table, cover it in gold, and put bread on it. And it needs to be hot at all times. I mean, hot, fresh, baked bread. And it was called what? The bread of the presence. It was a reminder that there can again be reconciliation. You can come again and have a meal in the presence of your God. Come to this table. There's warm bread for my people. Exile, a table removed. So God's people didn't appreciate the access they had to God's presence. They didn't remain faithful so they couldn't enjoy his presence anymore at the table. So they were, they were kicked out. This is humanity's fate apart from the grace of God. This is why all of us need a savior, needed a savior, and need a savior. Having sinned against a holy God, humans cannot thrive. It's impossible. There is no nourishment. There is no provision in this world that can compensate for the absence of the favorable presence of God. Try as you might, but Jeremiah said, everything you reach for is a broken cistern and it doesn't have any water. Come to God, Jeremiah and the prophets would say, and you can have water and wine and meat and come and leave your purse at home. You're not gonna need anything to buy it because it's gonna be a free gift of grace. The reality of exile is a reminder of what we forfeit by the presence of sin in our lives by refusing to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. So how will fallen humanity, here's the question, how will fallen humanity having broken the table of fellowship ever make it back to the presence of God and to the joyful feast that he prepares for us. 
enter, son of man, a table with sinners. So the book of Acts was written by Luke. The book of Luke was also written by Luke. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, it's fascinating. What's often pointed out is how Luke fills in his Gospel with stories where Jesus is just eating with people. I mean, it's all throughout Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter five, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Luke seven, Jesus is having a meal with people. Luke nine, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, he eats in the home of Mary and Martha. Luke 11, he's at a meal. Luke 14, he's at a meal. Luke 19, he invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. Luke 22, we have the account of the Lord's Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ appears to his disciples and he says what? Let's eat. It's a meal with Jesus. The entire gospel of Luke is, is, could be framed around a meal with Jesus. Matter of fact, I was referring to Tim Chester a moment ago, the Christian author. He wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus where he just unpacks the gospel of Luke with reference to eating. So I wonder how you finish this sentence. The son of man came blank. How do you finish that sentence? Here's how Luke finishes it. He finishes that sentence two different ways. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. And Luke says, the son of man came eating and drinking. <laughs> he came to eat. He came to prepare a table. That is, when Jesus came to this earth, he reopened the table for sinners. And that leads us to the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord, where on the night before Jesus was crucified, he took bread and he broke it and he said, my body will be broken like this for you tomorrow. My blood, he poured the cup, will be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. The communion meal, the Lord's Supper, tells the story of redemption. While we remember the day that God's judgment was poured out on Calvary's cross, when God's judgment was poured out in full measure, what are we doing? We're safe inside eating a meal, safe under the blood of the lamb. That's the first way he was introduced. John Baptist sees him coming down to the River Jordan. He says, ladies and gentlemen, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're gonna make it back to the table through him. How does the story end? Revelation 19.9. Blessed are, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So new creation, a feast for the ages. Every time we take communion together, we are rehearsing for the feast of the ages. Every time we take communion, Jesus is renewing his promise. Jesus is welcoming us to the table. And we leave the gathering when we take the Lord's Supper. I love this. You leave the gathering tasting grace on your actual tongue. It is a tangible, palpable reminder. What we have, Brook Hills, every single Sunday is gospel. Every Sunday, gathered worship announces good news for the sinful, the needy, and the hopeless. And because God loves to run to the sinful and the needy and the hopeless, I believe God's favorite place on earth every Sunday is the local church, which is a long way around of just saying, I think God has one of these. <laughs> Do you have one of these? Do you feel the way God feels about what we're doing this more ordinary as it feels? Do you sense 
the sacred privilege of gathering with God's people. And I pray, again, during this too strong emphasis that you will fall in love anew with the ordinary and yet beautiful thing that is the church. That you'll feel the joy of gathering every Sunday and that you would, on your darkest days, be sung back to life by the people in this room as together we draw near.